Well, good evening, church. Man, I love our worship team. I just love our worship team. So thankful for them. I just love our, our entire team. Our whole staff here at this church is just a blessing. And you know what I'm really excited about tonight? Tonight, here at the Lamb's Chapel, is the very first night ever that we are offering ASL interpretation for the deaf right over here. We've got Bud Cato signing tonight, and uh, I, I hope that anybody that you know that is looking for a venue like that, if they are deaf and they want to come be part of a fellowship and uh, listen to a message, that they have access to that here on Wednesday nights at, at TLC. So we're excited about that. Well, I want you to take your Bibles and join me in the book of Revelation once again. And we're going to continue in our series on the seven churches. We've been looking uh, at these seven churches, seven letters to the churches of Asia Minor. Uh, the backstory, of course, is that John, the last living apostle, has been exiled to the island of Patmos. He is by now an, an aged man, and he has been consigned to this island to do hard labor. And it is there in his imprisonment that he witnesses the risen Christ. Jesus himself appears to him, and he says, John, take a letter. In fact, take seven letters. I'm going to dictate to you, and I want you to write these down, and I want to send these letters out to the prominent churches there in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And we've looked at four of those letters, and these letters are to, to seven literal churches. These are actual churches in John's day, but that does not mean that the content is only beneficial to those churches. There is beneficial content there for this church, for all churches across history. And we've looked so far at the, the letter to Ephesus. That was the church that left its first love. They were the first century church. Uh, the passion for the gospel uh, got cold in their heart. We looked at a letter to the church at Smyrna, which was the purified church. They were persecuted and uh, grew strong as a result, drew close to Christ. We looked at the church of Pergamum, which was the compromised church. This is the church that, that uh, began to go after idolatry and allowed dark things in. And then we saw the letter to the church last week at Thyatira. Thyatira is the corrupted church where compromise had bloomed. It, it had grown to uh, catastrophic levels in that church. And now we come to a church in a city called Sardis. Sardis. And the interesting thing here about Sardis is that this is one of only two churches listed among these letters that receive absolutely no commendation from the Lord Jesus. Every letter has an attaboy, has, a, you know, you did this right, and then it gets into, you know, this I have against you. Not so with Sardis. And there's one other that we're going to look at that's going to be described in that way. But here's a little background on this city called Sardis. It, it is in western Turkey. Uh, it's 30 miles south of Thyatira, which we looked at last week. It's in the foothills of uh, Mount Tomolus, which is near a river called the Pactolus River in western Turkey. This area had large deposits of gold. It was a very wealthy area due to the gold that was there. In fact, this is the, the first place that history records that silver and gold were minted into coins. was in Sardis. Uh, last week, we talked about Thyatira. The, the prime industry there was, was purple fabric, and we talked about that dye, that they would dye this fabric. Well, the process for dyeing wool and fabric actually originated right here in Sardis, and so this is also a big textile town, just like Thyatira, but it's known for its wealth. How wealthy was this place historically? Well, there's a notable resident in antiquity, a king that ruled from Sardis. He was the king of the Lydian Empire, and his name was Croesus. I don't know if you've ever heard of a king called Croesus. Maybe you've heard the phrase, that guy is richer than Croesus. Uh, Croesus was a wealthy king from Sardis, and he ruled there till he was defeated by Cyrus the Great in 546 B.C. Uh, you might know from a child, perhaps, you read some fables from a guy named Aesop. Or Aesop, depending on how you pronounce that. He was from Sardis. Uh, this is a city where Xerxes uh, marshaled his forces before he went off in the battle. So it was an important city. It was a, uh, a wealthy city, and it remained so for many years. But by the time of this writing right here, it had been under Roman rule for some time. And by then, it was in decline. The economy was in decline. 
the morality <laughs> was in decline. And yes, there was a church in this city that had declined to the point where it is now described as being dead. Sardis is the dead church. And it is this church we're studying tonight. It's been said that Sardis is the antithesis of Smyrna. We looked at the city of Smyrna and that church. Uh, the, the Christians at Smyrna, many of them were persecuted and even killed, and yet that church is described as being alive. It is a vibrant church despite the death that it endured. This church underwent no persecution whatsoever, and yet it is called a dead church. And there's nothing worse that could be said of a church than to say that it is dead. And it's especially sobering when the one that says you are dead is the Lord Jesus himself. And so we're going to look at this church tonight. Would you bow with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I pray for your blessing to be upon our time and your word. As we open this, God, may our eyes be alive. May they be illuminated to this text. May you show us what it means to be dead, Lord, and what it means to be alive. May we see what to do by your commands to this church, but also by the example of Sardis, what not to do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to start... By looking at the Lord's character, in your notes, every letter begins with a glimpse of the Lord's character. As in all these letters, Christ begins by identifying himself. He says in verse 1, to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, uh, just remind you, in all of these ch churches, the letters start with this, to the angel, and angelos means messenger, and so the messenger of the church is the pastor of the church. That's what is meant by the angel. He says, write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. The seven spirits and the seven stars. What is this seven spirits business? What in the world are the seven spirits of God? Isn't God the Holy Spirit? That's not seven. There's only one Holy Spirit, right? What is this business about seven spirits? Well, you see this phrase uh, throughout Revelation. Revelation 5, John is transported to the throne room of heaven, and he sees seven torches of flame before the throne. And he says those are the seven spirits of God. In chapter 6, he sees a, a lamb with seven horns and seven eyes. Lots of imagery in Revelation. He says those seven eyes are the seven spirits of God. What in the world is this? What are we talking about here? Well, we may have a clue from the book of Isaiah. And one of the great things about Scripture is that when you're reading something, especially something from a, a prophetic book, and you're confused and you don't know what it means, and the answer is not right there in front of you, you can often look to Scripture to interpret itself. And so you can go outside of your text and often there's something elsewhere in the Bible that will shed light on what you're reading. And so I want you to look here in Isaiah 11 real quick. In uh, verse 2, it says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And that him refers to the Messiah. The prophet is talking about the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord rests upon the Messiah. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And this verse uh, talks about what a lot of scholars call the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit. And it, this is the sevenfold ministry. These are seven characteristics of the Holy Spirit's ministry found in Isaiah 11. And we, we see that it's the spirit of the Lord. He's the spirit of the Lord. He rests on Christ. And what that means is that he, he is rooted only in Christ. He's the Spirit of the Lord. He is connected to Jesus. It's the Spirit of Christ. And then number two, he's the Spirit of wisdom. Where is wisdom found? It's found in the Word of God. How is the Word of God transported to you and I? It comes by uh, the inspiration of the, the Holy Spirit. It comes through the Holy Spirit, that, that men filled with the Spirit put pen to page and transcribe the Word of God for you and I. And then he's the Spirit of understanding. When you and I read the Bible, how is it that we perceive? How are we enabled to do that? It's spiritually discerned. We who are indwelled with the Spirit, right? We are enabled to perceive and to understand. And then he is the Spirit of counsel. That's part of this, okay? Uh, you know, Jesus told the disciples the Spirit is going to come, and when he comes, he will remind you of everything that I have taught you. He's going to bring it to your mind. Uh, aren't you glad that the Lord counsels us, that he guides us in what we should do? Uh, and he's the Spirit of power or of might. He empowers us. When you have the Holy Spirit living in you, you know what that means? That means that you are empowered 
to do what you could not do on your own. He gifts you. He equips you to do great things. And then he's the spirit of knowledge. Knowledge, what kind of knowledge are we talking about? Is this information to puff up our brain? No, this is the knowledge of God himself. This is an intimacy uh, that we have. We can know Christ. We can be in relationship with Christ. How is that possible? Only by the Holy Spirit. And then he's the spirit of the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. Uh, Fear is reserved for God and God alone. We revere him. We are in awe of him. And we are reminded of that because of the spirit that lives in us. So there are seven of these. It starts with his unity with the Lord. He is not a force. He is not just some ethereal entity. He is divine. He is a member of the Trinity. And he's connected to God. He's connected to Christ. And all the other attributes come from that. And so we see seven characteristics, not seven individual spirits, one spirit, sevenfold ministry there. And what Christ is saying is, I have the fullness of that spirit in my hand. And not only that, he says, I got the seven stars. I have the seven stars. That might ring a bell for you. If you were paying attention in week one, the letter to the church at Ephesus, he introduced himself in the same way. He said, I hold the seven stars in my right hand. And what, what, what did that mean? We said that stars and angels are synonymous. They are interchangeable for the pastors of the church. They, they bring an illumination to the church. And so by saying, I hold the seven stars, there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven churches I, I have authority over the totality of the church on earth. I've got the fullness of the Spirit. I've got the totality of the church. I'm an authority of both, and I'm going to bring these hands together. And so what this means in your notes is that Jesus has the fullness of the Holy Spirit, which he gives to the church. Aren't you glad that he's given us the Holy Spirit? The church does not exist apart from the Holy Spirit. It was born on Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. What happened? Holy Spirit came down. It indwelled those apostles. It filled them. Tongues of fire were over their head. They went forth, and thousands came to Christ, and the church was born on the day of Pentecost because of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And he connects them. John 16, 7, nevertheless, he says, I tell you the truth. He's telling his disciples. He's already told them, I got to go. Fellas, I can't stay where I'm going. You can't come, right? I'm going to ask Father. He's going to send you another just like me. And he'll be with you, be in you forever. And he says here, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. And so if I go, I will send him to you. And, and that is a necessity because he's got plans for these disciples, these apostles. Every gospel ends the same way. In Matthew, go therefore make disciples. In Mark, go preach to all creation. In Luke, preach preach to every creature. In John, uh, as the Father sent me, so send I you. Uh, How does Acts begin? You are to be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And how how are you going to do that? On your own power? No way, Jose. You need the Holy Spirit. Amen? And so that's what this is all about. So that is the description of the one sending this letter. Now, who's this letter going to? Who's the recipient? The church at Sardis. What do we know about that church? Not a lot. We don't know who founded this church. We don't know at this point here who the pastor is. We don't know any names associated with this church at the time of this writing. Now, history does record the name of a pastor that comes later on, decades later. We'll talk about him in a bit. But we don't know a lot about this church other than to say that this church was birthed, founded when the gospel went out from Ephesus into Asia Minor. But that's the beginning of this letter and it moves very quickly into the Lord's condemnation. He condemns them. There's no, you did this right and then I'm going to tell you about something that I got against you. No, he, he cuts right to the chase. Here's my problem. Uh, All four churches so far have had something positive. Not so with Sardis. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. You are dead. And we're not talking about physical death, are we? What is this in your notes? It means that collectively, collectively, this church is spiritually dead spiritually dead what makes me spiritually alive 
It's the Holy Spirit. I am spiritually alive. It's because of the Holy Spirit. The Lord has the fullness of the Spirit. He's got the churches. He gives that Spirit to the global church, the the entirety of Christians worldwide. So what he's saying here is that this particular local church, this body of believers, this congregation, although the global church has the Spirit, you folks collectively do not. And so the first part of verse 1 has to do with the fact that Christ has given the Spirit to the church global. The second part of verse 1 has to do with the fact that this particular congregation is devoid of the Spirit. They're dead. They're dead. Now they look alive. They look active. They look animated. But the King James says it this way. He says, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive. You have a name. Right? What does it mean to have a name? Uh, the Latin word for name is nom, N-O-M, nom. Uh, what does it mean? What do, what do you call it when you are something in name only? You are nominal. You're nominal. What does it mean to be a nominal Christian? A nominal Christian says, yeah, I got a, I got a cross. I got a cross necklace. I got a cross tattoo. I got the outline of a fish stuck on the bumper of my car. I got a t-shirt that says, in case of rapture, you can have this shirt. I, you know, I drink my coffee at the church coffee shop. It's called Hebrews, you know. I, I, I know all the words to all the worship songs. I got it going on, but that's, you know, that's it. That's all. Nominal. You are a Christian in name only. He says you got the reputation, you got the name. You wear the label, but you're not the real deal. And not only are you not the real deal, you are a corpse. You are dead. You are... Weekend at Bernie's personified, all right? You look animated, but you're already decomposing. You're already stinking because you're dead. Jesus starts, he says, I know your works. Some hear that and they go, works? Well, I mean, don't works indicate life? I mean, doesn't James say faith without works is dead? Do not works indicate life? Well, it depends on the works, and it depends on the motivation behind those works you see but i'll tell you one thing works alone are not an authenticator of life they might just be the faint echo of the church's historic faith tradition all right what the works that are being witnessed could just be the residual effect of past historic faith in your community they may not be evidence of actual spiritual life taking place, okay? You know what a light year is? A light year, that is the distance that light travels in a year. The speed of light is 186,000 miles a second. Uh, a light year is almost 6 trillion miles. That's, that's the distance light travels in one year. Now, you could go out in the, uh, in the parking lot Uh, After the service tonight, if it's dark, you can look up in the sky, you can see stars up there. Did you know that the closest star that you will see in the night sky uh, is Proxima Centauri? It's a low-mass star. It's about 4.24 light years beyond our sun. Okay, you know how far away that is? That's like 25 trillion miles from here. Okay, There, there are stars up there that are 33 light years from us. If you're waiting on me to do the math on that, tell you how far that is, don't hold your breath, all right? I can't, I can't, I can't do that math. But you know what that means? That means that, that what you see in the night sky, you, you are witnessing the light of stars from 33 years ago when you look up there, okay? It looks brilliant, but you're looking into the past. You are not seeing that star as it is right now. You are looking into the past of that star. For all you know, that star could have collapsed in on itself a quarter century ago, and you'd never know. It could be dead, but it looks alive. And there are churches that people look at, and from the outside, they look healthy. They look alive. They look vibrant. Could be because of a number of things. Maybe it's a philanthropic church. Does a lot of good. Could be a very humanitarian. Could be a a place that's got a reputation of welcoming people in the community. But there's something wrong. And there's something wrong with Sardis. This church is roughly 30 years old, Sardis. Uh, that's not, and it, it, it wasn't founded that long after Christ uh, ascended. So what is it that could cause its demise so quickly? Well, I believe that you've got people in this church that are part of it for the wrong reasons. 
they joined for the wrong reasons. Maybe they were born into it. You know, maybe that's just where their family was and they're there, but they've got no relationship with Christ. Maybe people have come and they've joined this church for the wrong reasons. Do people do things that look good, that, that seem good, that seem right, but they do it for the wrong reasons? Do people get married for the wrong reasons? Absolutely. Uh, if you ask my wife, you know, did you marry Scott because you knew he would bring you endless financial stability and make wise decisions with money indefinitely and just bring home loads of cash? Is that why she left you right out of that room, man? Did you marry Scott because he's Mr. Fix-It? You know, he does all the plumbing and he's a carpentry whiz and all that. And she'd say, are you kidding me? I didn't marry him for that. I married him because he's got an incredible body. I just, you know, I, uh, she never said that. I'm sure she's thought it, but uh, you can marry someone for the wrong reasons, right? Can you do that? Can you, can you make vows that you don't mean? Is that possible? I, listen, I've sat in weddings and I've, I've listened to young people make vows. And I'll, they'll be up there, they'll be like, I pr- and they're just looking at each other, just so overcome with emotion on a day. Like they look at each other and they're like, I promise to honor, love, and obey. And I'm just sitting there going, you don't know what you're, you know. You got no idea, you know. What happens when you marry for the wrong reasons? When you marry for worldly, fleshly, materialistic uh, uh, reasons, what happens? You end up in a lifeless marriage, don't you? You end up with dead eyes. You end up, Often in adultery, it happens. And that can happen in church. That happens in a spiritual sense because sin kills churches. And sin, I will tell you, is a given if that church is superficial. If that church is simply a cosmetic place, if it's just for show, if there's nothing real, sin can go unchecked and the whole entity will end up dead spiritually. And so that is the condemnation. Now we're going to see the Lord's command. Look at verse 2. Simple command. Just two words to start. What are they? Wake up. You're dead. Wake up. So this, in your notes, is a command to the unbelievers in that church. He's commanding the unbelievers. And what that means in your notes is acknowledge your condition. Acknowledge your condition. You need to assess things. You need to understand you're dead. Do you not know you're dead? Have you seen the movie The Sixth Sense? All right, Bruce Willis. It's an M. Night Shyamalan uh, supernatural movie, The Sixth Sense. If you haven't seen it, I'm about to ruin it for you, all right? You got five seconds to leave the room if you want to watch this tomorrow. Okay, I'm going to ruin the movie. Bruce Willis is dead, the whole movie. Okay? He's a ghost, and he doesn't know it. He doesn't know it, and the audience isn't supposed to know it. Now, I went and saw this movie in the theater, and I got so mad at myself because a quarter of the way through, I, I, I figured it out. And it wasn't because I'm smart. I just, something occurred to me, and I'm like, oh my gosh, he's dead. You know, now that's like a go-to plot point because this spawned a whole bunch of movies that, that kind of follow that storyline. But I, I sat there and I was irritated the whole time because I, I, I realized he's dead. He doesn't know he's dead. I'm not supposed to know he's dead, but I'm sure he's dead. And the whole time I'm going, you're dead. You know, why don't you wake up, realize you're dead? How come you don't get it? Although it's a sad indictment on our society that people could watch The Sixth Sense and they realize Bruce Willis and his wife never say a word to each other in the whole movie. And everybody feels like, well, that's normal, you know? <laughs> You gotta realize you're dead, Sardis. Stop being so blind. Uh, We need to assess our situation spiritually. In 1980, the US Geological Service knew, they knew that a volcanic eruption on Mount St. Helens was imminent. And they spent two months trying to evacuate everybody from the area. They're trying to get them out. This, This thing's gonna blow, you're gonna die. It's very, very dangerous. Well, there was this old man. You might remember this, you old timers. You might remember there was an old man the caretaker at the Mount St. Helens Lodge at Spirit Lake, right at the base of the mountain, the guy's name, I kid you not, was Harry Truman. That was his name. 
no relation, but he, he was a he was this cantankerous old cuss. I mean, just a colorful, uh, stodgy, stubborn, hard-headed curmudgeon. He's a World War I vet, and nobody was going to tell him he had to leave. I mean, he wasn't going anywhere. And he became sort of a celebrity for like two months. He did interviews with all these reporters. They'd go up there like, sir, now why are you staying? Don't you think you ought to leave? And it's so dangerous. And don't you think you could die? And he's like, I'm not going anywhere. Nobody can pull me out of here. Why? That mountain's not going to hurt me. I'm a mile away from that mountain. I got a whole lake. This area is heavily timbered. I'll be fine. The mountain wouldn't bother me. Why? Truman's a part of that mountain. And that mountain's a part of Truman. And then May 18th, 1980 came. And then Harry really was a part of that mountain. (laughs) And he was toast because he did not accurately assess his situation. And anybody that expects to have life beyond this life needs to assess their situation. You've got to recognize I'm spiritually dead. I need that which brings life. And so that is his command. Acknowledge your condition. Wake up, wake up, wake up before it's too late. And then there's another command, and in your notes, this command is to the sleeping believers in the church. You say, the sleeping what now? That's right. There are believers. You say, I thought this was a dead church. Oh, it is. Collectively dead. But even in dead churches, you will have people that know Jesus. Now, they're not great Christians. They are not mature. They are weak. They are... Uh, listless, let's say, but there can be some believers in a dead congregation. And here's their command. Uh, He continues on in verse two. He says, strengthen what remains that is about to die. And so these guys are the Christians that are sitting on the fence and they are alive internally, but they are functionally dead. They're living as though they're dead. He says, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. I have not found your works complete. The church has works, but they're not satisfactory to God. They are insufficient in the eyes of Jesus, okay? Now, to remind you, as with all these churches, they are representative of eras of Christian history. If you look at Ephesus, that is the quintessential first church, first first century church, the apostolic age, okay, that that eventually grew cold over that first century. Uh, The next church, Smyrna, persecuted represents the church that suffered under the Roman Empire, that was slain for their faith. And in in being persecuted, they were purified. They came back to Christ. They grew. They thrived. They became strong. And after years and years and years of trying to eradicate Christianity through persecution and finding they're not going anywhere, they're only getting stronger, Rome throws in the towel. They say, if you can't beat them, join them. Emperor Constantine decrees all of Rome is now Christian And that is mirrored in that third church of Pergamum, the compromising church. Because when church and state united, there was widespread compromise. There was idolatry mixed in with Christian practice. And then we looked at Thyatira. Thyatira represents the church of the Middle Ages. After church and state united, you had the birth of the Roman Catholic Church, one church, one state church. And over time, over the centuries, into those Middle Ages, it became extremely corrupt. You had, uh, you had priests and, and bishops that were uh, unscrupulous. And you had uh, immorality behind the scenes. And you had widespread nepotism. And the church became financially fat at the expense of others, but they were morally bankrupt. And they had errant doctrine, and they introduced worship and veneration of Mary, and they, they prayed to saints, and they believed in purgatory, and they, they demanded uh, indulgences, and, and they, they advocated for all these errant things, and it got worse and worse and worse, and, and Catholicism finally jumps the tracks, and you have this event that's, that's seminal in the history of the Christian church, and it's called the Protestant Reformation. And the church we're looking at tonight, Sardis, the dead church, I believe represents the church of the Reformation era. Uh, The the reformers were seeking to escape the error of Rome. The word Sardis means those who are escaping. Okay? Now, you might be confused. Well, Pastor Scott, it sounds like the Reformation was a good thing. 
It sounds like we needed to leave the error of the Roman church. Uh, You've talked about it as a positive thing. How could a dead church represent the church of that era? Well, let me explain how this happened. When the Roman Catholic Church moved away from essential doctrines of the Christian faith, you know, justification by faith alone, grace alone, through Christ alone, uh, you know, and and they started to embrace false doctrine and the like. There were people that had a belly full of that. One of them was a German monk named Martin Luther. Martin Luther drafted a document, his famous 95 Theses, in which he, he listed 95 theological errors of the Roman Catholic Church, and he, he nailed that to a bulletin board uh, at the front door of the, the cathedral at Wittenberg, Germany, on October 31st, 1517, right there on Halloween, all right? And that was over 500 years ago. And Martin Luther was not trying to start a worldwide revolt against the church. He loved the church. He wanted it pure. He wanted it free from heresy. But what happened was a wildfire commenced. And this thing went, for its day, what we might call viral. And the result was uh, a, a, a very visceral reaction. And in droves, people uh, protested Rome. The Roman Catholic Church, and they left, and it resulted in the establishment of Protestant churches separate from Rome. And in the centuries that passed after the beginning of the Reformation, uh, there was widespread bloodshed and violence between the Roman Catholic Church and these Protestant churches that were protesting, amen? And so they, they were punishing them. There was an inquisition in Spain whereby uh, 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 Protestants were, were uh, threatened, and they were killed for their faith. Uh, in Paris, they were led uh, uh, under false pretenses for peace, but they were, they were slain in the streets, and you had a lot of horrible things that would transpire there, but you had strong and courageous leaders that stood up for the church in this period. And so you saw some good things, but here's what happened. As the second generation of Protestants emerged, the children of the original Protestants formed their own churches, their own denominations, and they began to make the same mistakes that the Roman Catholic Church had once made. And in smaller geographical regions, in, in, in countries, individual countries and principalities, church and state would once again merge, just like it once did under Constantine. And uh, the Lutheran Church became the state church of Germany. And the Anglican Church became the state church of England. And the Protestant Church became the state church of Scotland. And the Reformed Church became the state church of Switzerland, Dutch Reformed, in Holland, you see. And this happened over and over. Pretty soon the focus in these areas became getting as many people on the rolls of these churches, these state churches, as possible. And the medium to join these churches, they decided, would be the ordinance of baptism. And baptism no longer uh, had the original meaning that was intended to convey, which is an outward testimony of an inward transformation, you see. And instead, it became simply a means to join these churches and to fatten their roles, you see. And doctrine just became this creedal thing. It just became something that you recite to be part of a club. And uh, not to mention, they they retained, many of these uh, factions retained some of the old Errant doctrines, they, they still practiced infant baptism, they practiced transubstantiation, or they believed that the communion elements literally became the flesh and blood of Christ, and, and different false doctrines. And the purpose of the Reformation just sort of got lost. And today, around the world, not only will you see cathedrals that have basically become museums, you will also see Protestant churches that have become dry and dusty. Now their heritage would indicate, you know, they, 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 they rebelled against Rome, they left errant doctrine. You know, they've got figures in their history like Martin Luther, like John Calvin, like John Huss, all of these guys, they left Rome behind. And, and in lieu of that, they probably, or in, 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 in consideration of that, they probably think they're sufficient in their own eyes, but they're dead. And this scenario gets played out all over the world. It gets played out in America. And every city you go to in America, you will find dead churches, dead congregations. Often it's the oldest church in town. It used to be a safe bet that you know it was the first church or this or that. 
And I, I used to serve on a staff at a First Baptist. And so it's not true of every first whatever. Some first churches have great leadership that stick to the Bible, that uh, expound on those doctrines. But, but often you'll find churches where you just you, you feel like i got to go in there with a defibrillator and revive these people. And they don't necessarily look dead from the outside. They look alive because they do things. But the reason they're dead is because they've shifted their focus to something that makes them look active. They focused on humanitarianism. They focus on social things. They help the poor. They value social justice or equality. They um, They do things in the community. They might do a lot of good, but Christ said, you're incomplete. You're incomplete. And this leads us back to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You think about the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit. What does the number seven mean? It's the number of completion. And you're devoid of the Holy Spirit collectively as a body. So whatever you're doing, it doesn't matter. The Holy Spirit's not in it. And so you're incomplete. And he says in verse three, remember then what you've received and heard. Keep it and repent. This is his command. What does it mean? In your notes, it means return to the truth and live it out. It doesn't matter what your church body is doing in the community. What are you doing? What are you doing? You believers, how are you living out the gospel? Are you asleep? Are you asleep in the light? I used to listen to a guy named Keith Green. I don't know if you've ever listened to Keith Green. You should. You're like, I've never heard of the guy. Change your life, man. That was when Christian music was different. There was nobody like him. His songs were almost prophetic. They were rebuking. They were like slap you around Jesus music is what it was. Okay? There, there were, he didn't do God is my girlfriend type songs. Okay, He had a song called Asleep in the Light. And here's some of the lyrics. He says, the world is sleeping in the dark that the church just can't fight because it's asleep in the light. How can you be so dead when you've been so well fed? Jesus rose from the grave, and you, you can't even get out of bed. That punch you in the face, brother. That's like a spiritual two-by-four right there. There was another Christian artist that was friends with Keith Green named Steve Camp, and he's another heavy hitter, but he wasn't when he knew Steve, uh, Keith Green. And uh, they were friends, and Steve Camp was kind of being mentored by Keith Green, and Steve was a musician, did a concert up in Denver like in 1980, and after the concert, he's, in his, he's getting in his car in the parking lot, and he gets jumped by two guys, and they're, they're going to rob him. He didn't have any money, and so they got mad, and they, they beat him to a pulp. And somebody found him, took him to the hospital, and they fixed him up. He's full of stitches, and they're like, you need to take it easy for a few weeks. So he's recovering. Keith Green calls him. He's talking to him on the phone. He says, man, you don't sound so good, Steve. And he said, well, brother, I got, I got jumped last night. I got beat up. And Keith's like, that's fantastic. Did you share Jesus with him? And Steve was kind of annoyed. He's like, uh, no, it didn't occur to me at the time. And Keith is like, well, I don't have time to feel sorry for you. You need to remember what you're here for. Get your life right with God. And he hung up on him. Now, that, that doesn't sound very gracious, I got to admit. And it sounds a little harsh, but hear me out. He could have maybe handled that conversation more gracefully, but what if that is the perspective we're supposed to have? What if every incident, everything we experience is an opportunity to represent Christ? What if we took that seriously? What if we did that? Would it change our lives? Would it change our world? And Steve Camp tells that story, and he says his life has never been the same since. And everything he goes through, he thinks... How should I represent Jesus in this moment? How should I lay it on the line in this moment? we got to live in the light. John 9, 4, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. You don't live like the world. They're in the dark. You're in the light. You can see. Function as one who can see. That's our command. And then we've got the Lord's warning to unbelievers. He goes on. He says, if you will not wake up. He's talking to the lost here because they're dead. If you're not going to wake up, he says, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. And what this means in your notes is that unrepentance will result. This is for the unbelieving. Unrepentance will result in everlasting judgment. 
everlasting judgment. Uh, he says, I'm going to come like a thief, okay? Now, I remember a movie when I was a kid called A Thief in the Night. It's an old 70s Christian film. If you watch it today, you'll be like, this is terrible, okay? But it scared the dickens out of me when I was a kid because it was about the rapture. It was about the Lord coming and snatching away his people. Now, hear me. If you know me, you know I'm a rapture guy. I believe in a pre-trib rapture. I don't make any apology for that. I think the Lord's coming for his church before his wrath hits the earth. So I believe in that. But that phrase, a thief in the night, has nothing to do with the rapture. When you see it in Scripture, it always has to do with judgment. Okay? Uh, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2. You yourselves are fully aware the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. When a thief comes, he's not coming to sweep you away to paradise. All right? A thief comes swiftly. He comes unannounced. He comes to steal. He comes to, to cause destruction. And this is the language of destruction, the language of plunder. And in verse 4, he says, yet you still have a few names in Sardis. You still have a few names, people who have not soiled their garments. So he's, he's commanded and he's warned the unbelievers. And now here is a promise to the believers in Sardis. He says, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. See, this is a dark letter, but there is some hope here. There is some encouragement here. And what this translates to in your notes is eternal personal fellowship with Christ. If you know him, if you know him, he wants you to live like you know him. But he also wants you to have the knowledge that you have eternal fellowship with him. That is a promise. And that promise should motivate you. It should motivate you. Not by fear, not by intimidation, but out of a heart of love and gratitude for the Lord that has promised eternity for you, you should live for him. You're not worthy by what you do. You're worthy by who's in you. And you unleash him who's in you. But here is this beautiful picture of heaven. No more beautiful picture of heaven. They will walk with me. You're going to walk with him. You're going to be with him. You say, wait a minute. You tell me I'm going to be with him one-on-one? -on -one? In heaven? That's right. You say, well, how does that work with, with, with billions of others in heaven? I don't know, but it will. It will. You will have eternal intimacy with him. He can pull it off. Don't you worry. Look, he's with you right now. There's countless people that know him on the earth right now, and he's still intimate with you in your soul. He knows you better than you know yourself. He wants you to know him. And you can. That level of closeness. Paul talks about it. He said... It is better, uh, you know, he said, uh, uh, what did he say? He said, uh, I'd be absent from the body is to be home with the Lord. Amen? He said, my preference is to depart from here and be with Christ, which is better by far, by far. Did Paul look forward to closeness with Christ and intimate one-on-one -on -one nature of that relationship? He did, and so should you, and that is a promise. But you walk with him, and you walk in white, in white. Verse 5, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. White represents purity. Purity. A Christian is someone that was once stained with sin, but you have been washed white as snow by the blood of the spotless lamb, and your sins are now cleansed white as snow. And we can't take part in heaven while we are sinful. And so Christ promises us a cleansing through Jesus Christ. And white in the ancient world uh, was purity. It was also celebration. People wore white to a wedding. Hey, do they still do that? They do. And so we understand that concept. There's a celebration that awaits us. White was for the victor at the games. They gave him a white stone. We talked about that with Pergamum, okay? White represented victory in all of this. And he says in verse 5, he goes on, he says, And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will never blot his name out of the book of life. What is the book of life? That could be a whole sermon right here. I could preach on that. Uh, we'll have to do that another time. But you see this phrase all over the Bible. Paul writes about it. It's all throughout Revelation. Uh, basically, the book of life, this is God's record of all the redeemed, all the saints of all time. Everyone who is bound for glory, 
Your name is in this book. He has recorded your name in the book of life. Okay, Revelation 20, 15 says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So you want your name in this book. Now, there are a couple of books that, that are written about. you got the book of life. you got the Lamb's book of life. People try to say those are two different books. I don't think they're different. I think they're the exact same book. Uh, but the, it's the Lamb's book of life. You know, this is Lamb's Chapel. If we had one of those old school church directories, maybe that's what we'd call that, the Lamb's book of life. Now, nah, that's a bad idea. Anyway, <laughs> you want to be in this book. And he's saying, if you, if you are one who conquers... I will never blot your name out of the book of life. What is that referring to? In your notes, it's eternal security in Christ. Not only do you have eternal fellowship with him, you've got eternal security in him. Meaning, if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, you don't have to worry about your eternity. You can know where you go when you die. Now, not everybody is ready for that. They don't know. They're, not, they're like, I don't know. I don't know if I can accept that. I don't know if I can embrace that. Because they read this, they go, okay, it says that he, he promises not to blot their name. The one who conquers, he won't blot their name. Some versions say, I won't erase their name. The one who conquers. And they read that, and he's, if, he's, if he's promising not to blot some people's names out of the book of life, maybe that means he's willing to blot other people's names out of the book of life. And they say, maybe the one who conquers is the Christian that, that is obedient that really nails it, and they won't get their name blotted out, but if, if you're a weak, disobedient Christian that fails from time to time, you run the risk of getting your name blotted out. Uh, I, I call nonsense on that. I believe that if you are saved, you are in Jesus. No one can pry you from his grip, and that includes you. Okay, you are saved, once saved, always saved. Why do people say that you could be blotted out of the book? They might look at Exodus 32 where the Lord says to Moses, whoever sinned against me, I'll blot out of my book. But the context there has nothing to do with heaven. Here's a, here's a novel idea. How about we read the Bible in context? That context has to do with untimely death. So that's not what we're talking about. This is... Not God removing your name from some heavenly role. This is him saying, you are in my book and you can take it to the bank. You can know that you know that you know that you know that you know that you're going to spend eternity with me in heaven. And I will say this language meant something to the people of that day, that there's a book with their name in it. Every city, every state of that day had a record of the citizenry. Every citizen's name was written down somewhere. Same way today. There's a census. The government knows who you are. All right? And in those days, your name could be blotted out of the state record in one of two ways. One, you could die. Even today, you know, they don't always do this, but sometimes when people die, they take your name off the voting roll. <laughs> I, uh at least that's what they told us in California. I... <laughs> the other way in the ancient world that they take your name off the roll is if you perpetrated some crime against the government, they would eradicate you. They would revoke your citizenship and they'd blot out your name. And what this is saying, in a, in a, in a concept known and familiar to the people of Sardis, the Lord is saying, I am not some petty human ruler that will take your name off the roll because of some crime. If you are in Christ, you are in me, I don't care what you do. There is no sin that's going to keep you from me. Nothing can keep you from my love. Nothing. You are in my grip. And the devil has no, nothing that can pry you out of that kung fu grip. Amen? And he says, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. What a comfort that is. You know, during the Reformation, for a few hundred years after it began, the Roman Catholic Church would excommunicate people. And that might not seem that harsh to you and I, but in their eyes what that meant is people would burn in hell. If you were not a part of the church, you would go to hell. That's what that meant. And so they excommunicated Martin Luther the father of the Reformation, they said, you must recant. 
And they hauled that German monk in before the, the Holy Roman Emperor, uh, Charles V, and they demanded he recant or else his soul be consigned to hell. And Martin Luther said, I cannot, I will not recant. It is not prudent. He said, to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. Here I stand. I can do no other, so help me God. Amen. Martin Luther wasn't scared of Rome. He feared the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell, and he knew that there was nothing that could keep him off the roll of heaven, that his name was written in the Lamb's book of life, and it didn't matter that Rome would excommunicate him. Jesus, Jesus knew his name. And what I want you to understand as we wind this down, I want you to understand one thing. If you are in Christ, your God writes in permanent ink. Amen? You are his. But because you are his, this last verse is for you. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. How did things play out for Sardis? Was this a completely hopeless situation? You're dead. You're dead. No, he gave him a command. There were believers in that body. I told you we don't know anybody associated with the church at this time, but we do know this. History has recorded the name of a pastor at the church of Sardis. Decades later, there was a man. His name was Melito. And because he was the pastor decades later, that, mean this church, that means this church survived. And you would, you would wonder if perhaps there was a spiritual awakening in this church during that time. And I suspect there was, because Melito, historically, is held up as an ardent apologist for the Christian faith who boldly preached the gospel. He was dogged, he was fearless, and the irony is this. It is believed that Melito, the pastor of Sardis, wrote the very first commentary on the book of Revelation. The book that described his very church as dead, he would go on to pastor that church and he would write the world's first commentary on that book that John wrote that included a letter that was dictated by Christ himself about the church at Sardis. And that tells you that there was a little bit of a resurrection that happened in that church. You see, our God is in the business of raising the dead. And he wants us to be involved because it's a family business. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just ask that you would empower us, Lord. Help us to be vibrant. Help us to be alive that everybody who knows us would look at us, would see you all over us. God, I pray this church would have a name that is not just a name only, but that our works would be evident and they would be complete. They would not be incomplete, but they would mirror your great purpose of multiplication, of the creation of disciples, of duplicating our faith in others in a way that echoes throughout eternity. And we pray your blessing upon everybody here tonight. Thank you for their attendance and their attentiveness. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.